Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I've recently started a new business called Bia that helps women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, irregular periods, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Denise Wooder, to our show today. Denise is the founder and CEO of Partake Foods, an allergy-friendly snack company. While still working a day job in 2016, Denise launched the business as a result of a scary incident with her one-year-old daughter at the time. She realized she had multiple food allergies and found it difficult to find alternatives for her that were not only healthy, but also tasted good. Although she was frustrated with the options available to her, it wasn't until her daughter's babysitter told her to actually do something about it. That's when Denise realized she's the perfect person to start the business, and that's when Partake Foods was born. We talked to Denise about every stage of the business from how she created the recipes in the early days and the many mistakes she made there to how she started selling cookies out of her car for many years. We discussed how she self-funded the business starting out, which included using all of her savings and selling her engagement ring at the time. Denise also opens up about her fundraising journey and how she went from nonstop no's to eventually finding the right partner and raising money from Jay-Z's venture fund, Marcy Ventures. To date, she has raised up to 19 million and is the first black woman to raise more than 1 million publicly for a CPG food startup. We talked to her about how she works through her burnout or anxiety when life feels overwhelming, her relationship with her partner while building the business, the importance of having a bigger why when going after your goals and dreams, and so many more gems when it comes to running a high growth startup and family. Welcome to the show, Denise. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I've been a fangirl for quite some time. So when your team reached out, I was like, yes, I've been wanting Denise on my podcast. I just really admire, you know, really your whole career trajectory, how you left corporate, how you started the business with Pure Hustle, your why behind it. So there's a lot of stuff I want to go into this interview. I have a ton of questions. So we'll just kind of jump right into it. I'd love to start with a higher level question and get your thoughts around what do you think is personally holding people back from really going after their biggest goals and their dreams? The fear of failure. I know that for me, sometimes that's the thing that makes me second guess, like, should I jump in? Should I do this thing? Because I'm scared to see what happens if it doesn't work. Did you have any, any of those thoughts starting out just like the fear of failure? And how did you conquer that in your own journey? So I definitely struggle a lot with imposter syndrome still, but I didn't have as much of a fear of failure. And I think it's because I started this company because of such a higher purpose other than just wanting to be an entrepreneur, wanting to make money. So I'm excited to talk about the inspiration behind the company and the good that we're doing, because those are the reasons I think that I haven't had as much of a fear of failure as I've been building Partake. Amen. And I think if you are only starting a business to 
launch a business or to make money, this shit is so hard that that will only take you so far, right, Denise? Like, Yes. <laughs> you find that out very quickly. Very like, quickly. Exactly. Yeah. Like to be doing the hustle for more than five years, six years, seven years, you need a bigger purpose and a why, which is why I really admire you. And I mean, I really think that's the secret sauce to building a business and sustaining all the hardship. But we'll, we'll talk all about that today. But I love it. The imposter syndrome, feel a failure. I'm glad you brought that up because I'm sure a lot of people resonate with that. And so many of the entrepreneurs, I deal with it, you deal with it. Women who have billion dollar businesses deal with it. It's like we all do, but just having the why and the mission and the courage to go after something is so possible for really anyone. So I'm excited to jump into your journey. So let's start from the beginning. You know, you grew up in a multicultural household in North Carolina. I'd love to hear more about that and really how you think your parents shaped your identity and the woman that you are today. Sure. So I am the daughter of a Korean mother and African-American father. My parents met when my dad was in the military stationed in Korea, and they settled in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is a military town outside of Fort Bragg. Shortly after I was born, my dad left the military and became an entrepreneur. He was an over-the-road truck driver, so he would be gone for weeks at a time. And so my mom was teaching herself English as she was teaching me English. I think one of the things I learned from her was just this, she just has so much strength. I've never heard her complain once. And like to imagine living in a foreign country, her family had disowned her because she married my black father. And so like to have no family, to have no friends, to just have this little baby that you're responsible for with no real support system and to be able to power through that, like she would not admit it. And she's like the tiniest person ever, but she's so strong. And so I admire that. I got my work ethic from my dad, I, from both of them, but my dad, I saw he literally like slept in his truck for weeks at a time when he was on the road. He just, I saw also like the the grind of being an entrepreneur. Yeah, it's cool to sign the checks at the end of the week, but also during the week you have to do all you have to deal with the people issues. You have to think about how you're going to fund the business. It's 24 seven, 365. And I saw that from him, but he also never complained. Like he did the work because he wanted to provide a better life for me. And so they instilled in me just really strong work ethic. This just like quiet strength and willingness to do what it takes to get the job done. I love that. I love that you said the quiet strength, you know, your mother who you said was a little bit shorter. Like I just get goosebumps hearing how she is because for her to leave her family, to be with your father, not know English well, to raise an incredible child like you, you know, alongside your father, it's just really inspiring to see that. And, you know, I'm curious, I know both your parents didn't have the opportunity to go to college. You were the first really college graduate in the family did they have certain expectations of you? You know, when you were thinking about that professional world and taking that next step, what did that look like for you at the time and the expectations that you might have had around that? So for my mother, success looked like you were a doctor, lawyer, <laughs> business person, maybe. And my father was like, do not be an entrepreneur. Like you've seen how hard it is. Like go get a corporate job, one that has a 401k and a pension and all the things. And so their expectation in sending me off to college was that I would go to corporate America, that I would work my way up the corporate ladder and I wouldn't leave. You know, it's funny because I think my dad is also entrepreneurial. I've kind of seen the, the ups and the lows and the highs and everything in between. And I've always wanted to start my own business, but he definitely pushed me away from it for a while. You know, eventually it looks like both of us kind of did our own thing because we have it in our blood. But it's just always interesting when your parents, of course, come from a great place. They want the best for you. They know how risky starting a business is and they just don't want you to go through that hardship. So I can see that angle from your parents. So you ended up going to great schools, working at top companies, I believe mostly in their sales divisions, you know, from 
Philip Morris, FedEx, and then eventually Coca-Cola, which was hugely pivotal in your career. So I'd love to hear more about this time frame in your life because I feel like we have a lot of women who are in corporate roles right now who are wanting to kind of take that leap or start a side hustle. I'd love to hear more about what do you think were some of the key takeaways you learned from that experience that has only benefited you now in this more entrepreneurial path? So one of the things through my experience in corporate America that I didn't do that I wish I would have done was to your point, I worked in sales roles. So I was really focused on just working my way to the top rather than taking lateral roles to learn about other parts of the business. And when I became an entrepreneur, understanding financial statements, operations, procurement, there was a huge learning curve because all I knew was sales. And when you're working in a really large company, not taking those stretch assignments really silos you. Like I knew sales inside out. I didn't know anything else. And if I were to go back and do it again, I probably would have taken, whether it be stretch assignments or different lateral roles, I would have explored that more because I think it would have made me a more well-rounded business person. But I do think through my experience in corporate America, I was a lot, I was able to learn a lot around process and quality and the right way to do things. But I think, and so, you know, you take some pieces, you leave some pieces. I also saw analysis paralysis and decision by committee and people scared to make decisions and not being empowered to. And so there were some parts of that that I've taken and then put into partake as we think about process and how we scale this company. But there's also places where I want us to continue to be nimble that I saw what happens when you don't do that through my corporate experiences. I think that's really powerful because I think a lot of us, I mean, I definitely thought this way when I was still in corporate and then I worked at startups. I'm like, I just can't wait to start a business. I'm still here doing my thing for somebody else for years. But I think if anything, like you said, it's only going to help you once you start your business. Like, I wish I could tell my younger self, this is great experience. Like you said, if you're able and have the ability to work at different silos or different companies, different industries, it only benefits you. And then like you also mentioned, you can pick and choose what you don't like, right? I'm sure we've all worked with managers we didn't love. I think about that all the time as I'm like growing my team and figuring out what shouldn't I do? You know, how should we grow the culture? But I think there is a huge value add for any woman who's listening today who is still in that job working for somebody else because there are so many things you can still learn and take away. So I love that. That also resonated with you. And I'm also curious when I was doing some prep, even before you started Partake, it seems like in all these corporate jobs, you were still doing a side hustle or different side hustles. Tell me more about the inspiration around that and what you were doing. I think I just always had a bit of an entrepreneurial nature. I had a ticket brokering business and I had an eBay business and they both came about happenstance. The ticket brokering business was because I was really excited to go see Beyonce and I bought tickets for the wrong city. And then I had to resell them. I was like, holy moly, you can make a lot of money doing this. And I worked from home and I always happened to be at my computer at 10 a.m. Eastern, Central and Pacific, which is when tickets go on sale. And so that is how that business came to be. And the eBay business, I would take other people belongings and sell them on eBay for them and take a cut of them, cut of it. And I saw like there was a reality TV show at the time about a woman entrepreneur who had built like this real company doing that. And I was like, oh, I can do that on a smaller scale. And so I just liked the idea of having some other thing that kept me interested, that kept me motivated, that I was building on my own. But none of those felt like scalable. Like I never considered leaving my corporate career for them, but I really enjoyed it. Interesting. I love that. And do you think you've clearly are motivated? I'm sure you were doing quite well financially in those jobs as you were going up the ranks. Were these side hustles just another opportunity for you to make more money? Like, how has your relationship with money been? 
I think I definitely had a, a humble upbringing. Like I didn't really want for anything, but there was never any extra by any stretch. Like we would drive to family vacation. We went to on two vacations my whole childhood. Like there was not a lot of excess and I wanted to be able to enjoy the fruits of my labor, but I also was maniacal about savings. And so this felt like a way that I could create some excess to have some spending money. And I honestly, like, it wasn't about the money. I really just enjoyed it. My corporate job was fulfilling, but it felt like there was something missing. And so I got just like this extra thrill and I got to learn more about business by having these extra side gigs. I love that. And so kind of going to your last job at Coca-Cola before you started your business, you were working with a ton of emerging brands, right? So I think I'm sure there's so much that you learned there. But what do you think were some of the biggest learnings working alongside these brands at just such a reputable company? I think one of the things I learned was that you can't recreate the magic no matter how much money you have. Like there was some parts of like, I think of Honest Tea, the founder and his story and how they incorporated impact into everything they were doing. Like there was no commercial, there was no celebrity, there was nothing that we could throw money at that could replicate that. And so I started to see how much consumers gravitate towards those like special parts of a brand and money can't buy that. I also learned that it's really hard to integrate a small company into a huge machine. You know, there were a lot of growing pains as we tried to like, how do you keep the magic of the small brand that got it here? But how do you really scale that? And I don't think we ever solved the answer for that. But it was definitely an ongoing challenge that I got to see. It was also interesting to see. I think it gave me the confidence to start Partake when I had the idea because I saw these people who were like, not to take anything away from them. They were smart and fantastic, but they also weren't any different than you or I. They just wanted to solve a problem and it turned into a business and they kept at it and they worked really hard and it turned into something really special. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long-term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. 
but I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. And now let's get back to the show. I love this. There's a lot of thoughts that are going through my mind, but that definitely also resonates with me. I think before this podcast, and that's why I'm so passionate about getting women, you know, who look like us, who have backgrounds like us starting businesses, because I used to throw these dinners of different women founders when I was still working for other people. And I was like, wow, similar to you. They're just like us. Like there's nothing different. Obviously they're smart. They're motivated. They have a business idea, but I was like, if they could do it, I think I could do it. You know, whenever I'm ready to pull that trigger, but I love that. You know, I think you being around those companies gave you the confidence that nobody has things figured out. You just kind of go along with it. So I, I just love that you brought that up. And then the first thing that you mentioned in terms of honesty, you know, I think a lot of women that I talk to who are wanting to start businesses sometimes think, you know, it's too saturated of the market. There's this big company out there, you know, let's just take honesty because you mentioned it. You know, there's certain things that you can't put money towards like a Coca-Cola. If it's the right timing, the right founder, the right impact, the right customer base, like you have the opportunity to build something amazing that Coca-Cola can't really start from scratch and do. So I just want to underscore that because I think a lot of people don't even take that first step because they're always intimidated that somebody else can come and compete with us or why would I do this? A bigger company can do something. But I love that. I love that you brought that up. So, you know, you're around these entrepreneurs, you're thinking, okay, I, I love what they're doing. You have this entrepreneurial blood in you, it seems like with your side hustles. Tell me more about 2016 and really what was the inspiration that kind of led you down the path of starting your own thing? Sure. So my daughter Vivian is seven now, but right around her first birthday, which was in 2016, we had a pretty scary incident with food allergies. And through that, we learned that she's allergic to tree nuts and eggs and corn and bananas, which is a very challenging combination. And I was really frustrated with what I could and couldn't find for her from a taste perspective, from a nutritional perspective. And most of all, like I thought about the emotional impact that having food allergies would have on her, how she wouldn't be able to confidently participate in so many birthday parties and playdates and celebrations. And I wanted her to have a snack that she could feel good about, that her friends were also enjoying. And so it felt like there was some white space in the market and I wanted to solve a problem for my daughter. So there's a lot that I want to unpack there. I'm so glad your daughter was okay because the fact that I believe like your nanny was with your daughter. Can you share the story about just the, I'm sure it was such a traumatic experience when you first found out how allergic your daughter was, you know, to all these various foods, but I'd love to kind of hear that story. Sure thing. So it was a Wednesday afternoon. We were on a conference call 
And I would, we had given Vivi a new snack. Our nanny Martha was giving her a snack and it just had two ingredients, corn and peanuts. And soon as she started to eat it, like her lips began to swell up. She started turning blue in our living room. And thank goodness we had a couple of EpiPens on hand because we had a couple of other not scary incidents that led us to believe that she had food allergies. And so it was through that experience that I understood the severity of food allergies, but also that I wanted to do something about it. And so that is where my journey with food allergies began. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine what that would feel like. I'm sure it was such a shock. I'm glad she was okay and everything. And, you know, I was reading a little bit more about your story and I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was your nanny who was like, Denise, you got to start a business around this. Tell me more about that. Is that true? And really kind of how you were approaching, you know, creating foods for your daughter and your nanny kind of bringing that up to you. So Martha, you can find her on our cap table because she has some equity in our company. Oh, I love that. She kept, she was like, why do you keep complaining about this? Like, you need to do something about it. Like, you're the right person to do something about this. Like, like she would go to Whole Foods and come back with ingredients and be like, let's make something. And so it was really her pushing me to to move forward with this that helped bring it to life. And did you have any hesitations around that when she was like, Denise, why don't you do it? You have the perfect background. You kind of are creating, I'm sure, different food products at home. But did you have any hesitations there when she would bring that up? Surprisingly, no. And that's how I knew it was the right thing at the right time. I mean, I definitely was like, you know, where will we make it? How will we make it? Like, I was asking questions to think through, like, is this worth leaving a career that I love? But I really believed that there was space for it because I'd seen firsthand that I wasn't getting a solution for, for the issue that we had. Yeah. And sometimes it just requires somebody planting the seed, right? I mean, you had the perfect skill set. You are someone who are super determined, but the fact that your nanny was kind of pushing you, sometimes we all kind of need that, whether it's a friend, someone close to you who kind of sees you in a different light. That's like, you are perfect for this, right? I mean, I had a similar experience and I was like, why did I not think about this before? And it felt so right. You know, it felt so right, like you said. So, you know, you have this idea, you're still working at Coca-Cola. Tell me more about those early days, right? There's so much to kind of think about it. All right, what's the first product? How do we create it? Can you walk through those early, early days of getting the business off the ground? Sure. So I was still working my full-time job. So this is early mornings, late nights, weekends. And I'm thinking, where are we going to make this? Like, If this is an allergy-friendly product, we need an allergy-friendly manufacturing facility. I'm thinking about how I'm going to make it. Martha and I have failed horribly in the kitchen, so I need a real product developer to help bring my vision to life. What are the products going to be? What's the name of the company going to be? And so those were the things that I was just like building spreadsheets and Google Docs and like making lists and cold calling people to try to figure out how to bring those things to life. Yeah. And I want to talk about product development, right? Like I know you and Martha were creating different products at home and I've kind of gone through my own journey with just product development too. And it's a food product. So I know there's a lot to think through there, but I know there was an instance where you worked with, maybe it was like one of the first recipe developers, like an influencer. I want to talk more about that because I know you guys were quite small and it was a big investment. And I think there's a lot of learnings that we can unpack from it. So I will say, don't always associate a big following or fame with somebody being the right fit for you. And so we worked with a blogger who was popular in the gluten-free space. And while what they created was delicious, it was not scalable. And so I should have gone for someone who worked at, at a food company who had experience commercializing and scaling up a food product. But instead, I found this influencer. And, and in theory, it seemed fantastic. 
but I didn't have enough experience to understand that that wouldn't be the same thing. So if I were to do that again, I definitely would have talked to other food founders. Other people were in this space because they would have probably been able to quickly tell me like, that's not the right person to bring this to life. So I would say for me, it was a lesson in like asking other people who've been there and done that to share what's worked, what hasn't worked for them, because that probably would have saved us some money and some time. And did you feel disappointed at the time? You're trying to get this product out. You're so pumped. You have high expectations of this blogger, right? How were you feeling when it didn't work out? Or was it just another blimp in the road? And you're like, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll get to the next step. I was definitely really bummed because it was, you know, for me, what felt like a humongous sum of money. And I was like, how are we going to make this work? But I also still didn't feel like that was the end of the path. I just complained about that for a day. And then the next day I started trying to find a solution that would work for us. So you realized that working with this blogger wasn't the right next step for you. And it was time to find someone who had more expertise in the space and really find the right food scientist. So how did you find that first person? Because being a small brand and getting in front of that person, it just takes a lot of work. So how did you kind of go about doing that? I looked at all the leaders in the allergy-friendly space and all of their past employees and anybody that had a job tied to food development, R&D, food science. I cold outreached and the perfect person who was a perfect gem fit for us, who we still work with to this day, actually responded to my cold LinkedIn message. I swear. I, I love this because I always am preaching. And if anyone's listens to my podcast, I'm like, cold outreach. Honestly, you never know who is going to respond, who resonates with your message. And I love just the thoughtful thoughtfulness you had around the outreach perspective. And I'll probably say that that most likely came from your sales background, right? <laughs> Definitely so. I love it. So, okay, you have your food scientists. And then how do you think about creating this? Because also fr from a co-packer's perspective, they don't really like to take risks with brands that are smaller, creating this new innovative product. So how did you kind of work through those potential complications? I cold called after finding some co-packers that could be a fit, cold called them. I found one that I was like, this is the one, this is who I want to work with. And they were working with much larger nationally distributed companies. And they had no interest in working with a woman who was cold calling them with no company. And I thought, well, I'll show them. And so I ended up running a Kickstarter campaign that finished in the top 1% of food Kickstarters at the time. And that got them to agree to work with us. And we went from their smallest customer in that allergy-friendly facility to the largest. Oh my gosh. I'm sure they're happy that they ended up doing business with you. But I love that that didn't hold you back. And it was more so the mentality around, let me prove them wrong and let's do a Kickstarter to kind of prove out the demand and then take it back to them. So how did you initially fund the business? You have all the main pieces, right? I'm sure you've dealt with like the name, you have the food scientist, you have this co-packer, you have a Kickstarter. How did you fund those early days and the initial run that you had? So we bootstrapped the business initially. My husband has a, a full-time job. And so thankfully, he was very supportive of the idea. So he helped finance, our personal finances helped finance the business. But as we got into it, I started to realize how expensive it was. And so, you know, it all didn't happen overnight. But one day it was like, let me take a little bit out of my 401k. And that became the whole 401k, which turned into my engagement ring, which turned into our credit card. So we bootstrapped it as far as we could. To the point, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. Like, It mm. creates a lot of strain and financial pressure when you're that invested in the business. But I just felt so passionate about what we were doing. I was seeing really positive results from a business perspective on sales. And so I felt 
comfortable, as comfortable as you can feel with that. But we were we were all in financially. You know, it's funny when my husband proposed, it was like shortly after because I also had Vicky Sai. She's a founder of Tatcha on my podcast. That's where I got the idea I from. Know. Oh my God, Denise. <laughs> I literally think about that. My husband joked and was like, if you want, because I just started my business back then. It was like a year and a half ago. He's like, listen, like if you want to sell the ring, go for it. And I was like, I might. I didn't need to yet. But it, ever since Vicky brought that up, I'm like, when you feel so passionate about the business, like now we're seeing growth. So I kind of understand what you're saying. You're seeing growth and you're like, I know this is working and I just want the right team to kind of help us get to the next level. But I've thought about, I was like, do I just sell the ring? And then, you know, I'll fund like someone's salary part-time. But I love that Vicky inspired you to do that. I'll have to tell her that she's inspiring women, business owners everywhere to sell their ring. Never met her, read an article, listened to a podcast. And I was like, that's it. That's it. I I called my husband. I was like, what do you think about this? And he was on board. I love that. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. I love that. Okay, so you raised the money. Tell me more about how you created awareness in the early days of the business. Before you were, you know, obviously now you're in a ton of retailers, but what did those early days of finally getting your product out there look like? So we focused on the New York market. I was selling cookies literally out of my car. And to get the word out, we did a ton of local events. I, on the weekend, would drag my family to like local trade shows, vegetarian food festivals, farmers markets to do demos in the grocery stores. And so we, it was really just like a very grassroots marketing approach. I think it's really important for founders to be really close to their customers, right? Because even when you launch your first product, you don't know how that's going to resonate. You don't know what the marketing messaging is. You don't know if people will even like it and putting taste in there. That's a whole nother ballgame. But What were maybe a few surprising things that you learned early in the business when you were going to these farmers markets, retailers by yourself and really putting it out there? I definitely underestimated how high of a barrier to entry there is with the food allergy consumer. And so while they were like, yeah, nice idea, they were also like, I don't know your brand. I don't trust your brand, like maybe in a few years. And I learned that our product had much more mass appeal than I originally ever thought of. And so there were just general health conscious consumers. There were people who wanted to support a woman or minority owned business. There were people whose kids didn't have food allergies, but they needed an allergy friendly snack to be able to take to school. And so it really opened my eyes to how much broader of a consumer group we could really touch, but also how much work we would need to do to build trust with the food allergy consumer. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And when you guys initially launched, how many SKUs did you have or how many products at the time? We had three flavors of crunchy cookies. Of crunchy cookies. Amazing. And do you still have those flavors or did you kind of pivot based on those early days of what people thought? We pivoted based on what people thought. We still have our chocolate chip and we still have our ginger snap, but one of the flavors is no longer. Yeah, no, it's helpful helpful to kind of hear. So you're getting it out there. You're getting traction with the people that are around. You're realizing that there's more of a massive scale outside of just purely people who are having food allergies. So how did you think about the fundraising journey there? I know there was multiple instances, but I'd love to just kind of hear how you thought about it at the time. After we had bootstrapped as far as we could, I started to try to raise some friends and family funding. That was my old colleagues, my husband's colleagues, anybody who would listen. And it came in five and 10 and $20,000 checks and never at one time. So we were always about to run out of money. It'd be like enough money that week to pay one bill or to go to one trade show. But it also gave us the capital we needed to go into Whole Foods, into Wegmans. And so we were able to kind of continue to prove things out, which gave us enough traction to be able to try to raise a seed round of funding. And so I hit the angel market where I was on the road pitching all the time, different 
different angel groups. And I got a lot of no's along the way. But thankfully, we closed our seed round of funding a million dollars in June of 2019. So I know there's a lot that we can unpack there. I know the fundraising journey isn't easy. One question that I'd love to get your perspective around, friends and family, was it a little uncomfortable for you to raise money for people that were super close and in your network? Or how did you feel about that when you first started putting yourself out there? I will say, so we don't, I don't have any accredited investors in my family. So it wasn't like people I was going to see at the Thanksgiving table, but I take anytime I'm taking anyone else's money for this business very seriously. And so it created even more pressure. So you have the pressure of like selling your engagement ring and being financially invested. And then you also have the pressure of, okay, I've now taken someone else's money and I'm responsible for providing a return. And it wasn't something I took lightly. And so Mm. I only did it when I felt confident there was something to this business and we had room to be able to try to grow it. And there was something there, but it created an immense amount of pressure if I'm being honest. How do you deal with that pressure? Because as the business grows, right, as you have people that you're hiring, you're making sure that their salaries are in place, you're bringing in more investors. Does this pressure get easier as the business grows or how do you deal with it? I think I have outlets for dealing with it, whether that be kind of personal tactics like a meditation practice or journaling or vision boarding. I think the pressure is now spread because we have a leadership team. That's and great. so like, it's kind of like they've like taken some of the pressure off my shoulders because I feel yeah. like we have the right people in the right seats who understand, who've been there, done that and understand what it's going to take to get the business to the next level. I also have like a really robust founder friend community. And so we're all going through the same thing. And so it's been nice to be able to have a community of people, whether that be internal teammates or external friends to be able to lean on. Yeah, it's tough, especially in the early days. You're like, everything is on me. The hiring, the selling, the ops, you know, it's all kind of boils on your shoulders. And I know, you know, you mentioned it in another interview, and I can't remember if this was when you were raising your seed round, but you had a panic attack and you didn't really realize what that was. But tell me more about when that was in your journey and did it shift the perspective of wellness or just anything that you were doing after you had that situation? Sure. So it was in January of 2019. So I was trying to raise the seed round of funding. I had been told no a thousand times. We actually had even more financial pressure at that point because my husband had lost his job. So I'm not paying myself a salary. I actually don't know if I've ever said that out loud in an interview. So there was also the pressure of that. And I was making spaghetti one night in the kitchen and my husband was traveling, doing demos at Wegmans for me in in Virginia, Maryland. And I started to have chest pains and I thought I was having a heart attack. And I called 911 and my daughter, who was like two or three at the time, three, I called our neighbor to look after her and they came and ran like an EKG and I went to the hospital and they were like, not everything looked normal. And they were like, have you ever had a panic attack? And I'm like, no, not me. Never. Like I have no anxiety. I'm like, what are you talking about? And then I started thinking about all these symptoms that I had been having over the past couple of months. Like I was tingling and I was having headaches that didn't make any sense. And I realized now all of that was just like anxiety and stress physical manifestations of that. Mm -hmm. And I realized how allowing myself to feel so pressured, I couldn't do that for my health. Like I talk about having a bigger purpose, like I want to be around for my bigger purpose. And so that was the thing that really made me start thinking about what kind of tools can I get in my toolbox? And Mm -hmm. when I start to feel that way, what can I do to address that head on rather than let it get to that point? 
gosh, I'm so glad you're okay. Yeah. I mean, as someone who's never had a panic attack and I'm sure you've been able to address so many stressful situations, you don't ever think that's why what's happening, especially like as an entrepreneur, or even if you're just someone who's has a lot of resilience and great, you just kind of move forward. Nothing phases you. You just keep going. And I've gone through my own health journey of you know, more of a hormonal issues that impacted me. And sometimes we forget just how important health is to show up as a leader, to show up as someone who is still around to kind of move the business forward. And I think that's important. And it's great now that you kind of are more in tune with your body and you know those red flags, right? Like when certain things are happening, I think that's so key. And that's been crucial for me too, because we all kind of get burned out, but it's like, how much are you going to push that needle over? And when do you need to kind of reset and be like, all right, I need to take a little bit of time off or two hours of just a quick break. Like these little micro self-care moments actually make a big deal in the long term of things. But I'm glad everything was okay. So, you know, you're going through this really tough point in your life. You're getting thousands of no's from the seed round. Tell me more about your first investor that came in and really kind of changed the game for you. So Marcy Venture Partners, which is a a venture fund that Jay-Z is one of the co-founders of, led our seed round of funding. And that definitely changed the trajectory of our business. Through a friend who knew one of the partners there, I was introduced to the firm and they were big believers, thankfully, in me and really enjoyed the product. And what seemed like a dream actually turned into reality. While you're getting all these no's, were you kind of crafting your pitch in a different way that maybe when Marcy ended up coming, you kind of had a different way to approach things? Or were they just people who really understood what you were doing and wanted to invest in you? I think it was the latter. I think through so many of like the angel pitch circuit, I was trained to be like robotic. Okay, this is my product margin. This is my three-year plan. This is what we're doing. This is who the consumer is. And when I got into that meeting, they were like, you know, tell me where you're from. Tell me about your upbringing. Who are you? And to have investors see you as a person. And then like, don't get me wrong. They wanted to understand the business too, but it was definitely a very different dynamic than anything I'd felt in the fundraising process that I had thus far. I love that. And yeah, shout out. I know I met with Charlie once before through a mutual friend and they're great. So just even having glimpses of people on the team, it's always nice to have investors who are supportive of you, who are real people, and you can just feel that connection with them. So I love that. So you get Jay-Z's team right involved. Tell me more about what those investors who said no initially had to say. Did they come back to you? And they're like, Denise, let me in. Like, What happened? (laughs) Yes. About half of them came back and wanted to participate. And so that was another really important lesson to me because I had gotten so down on myself. And then I realized that it wasn't necessarily about me or my business that they had said no, because it was like same founder, same product, same story. And then one other like influential group says yes. And all of a sudden, folks are interested. And so it was a very interesting to a very interesting lesson in fundraising. Yeah, not to take things personally. Well, you've definitely gone through your own journey. And I know we've talked about a few of your own learnings. But do you have any advice for people who are kind of going through that journey? Anything that you wish you knew before starting out when it came to fundraising? Start earlier than you expect to need to, whether it's through like the reading of books like Venture Deals or talking to founders, learn how to speak the language. I think it was very clear to potential investors that like, I didn't know a cap table from like, I didn't know like a liquid day. I didn't know any of the terms. And it was very clear getting familiar with the terminology and being able to speak the language, getting warm introductions, starting to build relationships, which is really easy to say. But like when you're running a business that has no funding and you have to do all the roles and then you're like, 
here, but also spend time meeting investors. It's just hard. Yeah, no, it is like, but it is really important to build those relationships. And I know you mentioned in another interview, the power of a warm intro. I think somebody had asked you, but can you kind of share that example? Because I think it, it is really important and really could move the needle for some people with even outside of funding, just warm intros in general. Sure. So a female founder that I really love their products and, and their traction and everything about the business, they're fundraising and they'd ask for, you know, potential investors. And I sent a list of people and they're like, oh yeah, I've reached out to them and no response. And I sent a note. They're one of our existing investors. And like five minutes later, they'd set up a call and they ended up actually moving forward. It was very interesting to see firsthand how a warm introduction can totally change a relationship. It truly can. I love that. And I try to help other people as much as because I've had so many people help me. So I love, I love that. So it seems like you are in an entrepreneurial group, you know, you're supporting other founders, mentoring them. What would you say are maybe a few things that you've seen maybe founders do wrong or the biggest mistakes that you've seen, even maybe from your Coca-Cola days when you were working with those emerging brands? Trying to grow too quickly I think that particularly in an inventory-based business, working capital and the requirements around working capital, promotion, sales, and marketing is very expensive. And I think when you bite off more than you can chew, no matter how great the founder is, no matter how great the product is, it's really hard to manage through that. And it's, it's okay to start small. I think some of the best businesses are built by people who are willing to go kind of whether it's region by region, retailer by retailer, but just like really starting small. I think that's one thing that I've learned on the journey. Another thing that I've learned on the journey is to not wish it away. I think there were so many times like I was doing those demos and I'm like, I can't wait till we're in Whole Foods. We got in Whole Foods. I was like, I can't wait till we're in Target. And now the business is so different. And while I'm appreciative of where the business is now, I miss the old days. So, and I didn't savor them as much as I should have or could have at the time. That's really powerful. And I think that just reminds me of even starting out, you have these expectations like, oh, I can't wait to hit this revenue marker. And then you hit it. Then you're like, oh, I can't wait to hit this. And just like you were saying, once I get into this retail store or that retail store, store I feel like it's just this moving pendulum and it's not going to bring that satisfaction. Of course, it's a great milestone, but it doesn't give you that fulfillment feeling all the time. So I'm curious, you know, as now you're in this position where you have an incredible leadership team, the company is a lot more mature from those early days when you're hustling, doing all the demos. How has that adjustment been for you? I feel like I've had three different jobs over the course of the company. First, it was like, you do all the things. And then second, it was like, you have a couple of team members, so you can work on some strategy, but like you're still in the weeds doing the doing. And now there's people who are much more experienced than me in each of their functional areas. And so I'm really charged with building the culture, with fundraising, with long-term strategy. And so it feels very different. And so I've had to like check myself in terms of like, I want to let people do their jobs. I want to make sure I'm doing whatever my current job is, but it's been definitely a learning curve to try to get adjusted. Too. Yeah, I'm sure because you're just involved in every single aspect. And then you start hiring people who know more than you because they're the expert in that field. And then your role kind of transitions. Very interested to see what that would feel like. But it's cool that you get to at least focus on the long term strategy, the mission, put yourself out there more. I'm sure back in the day with these podcasts, like you had no time to do it because you were literally, yeah, people ask me and I'm like, I'm barely trying to keep my podcast going. Like I'd love to speak, but I don't know when I can do it. Can you do weekends? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. But, you know, another question I have as this company, you know, you're obviously successful, the company's more mature. Are there a couple things that might be keeping you up at night right now? 
things that are keeping me up at night are from a team perspective, how do I keep the team engaged and motivated? I know that our team is, we're only as good as our team. Like they're the reason all the magic can happen. And so I want to make sure that our employees are happy and feel valued and that we're continuing to like support and nurture the culture as the team begins to scale. So that's one of the things that keeps me up. From a fundraising perspective, there's definitely some macro headwinds that have started to exist. And so, you know, thinking about our path to profitability and what that looks like and just how to extend cash runway and continue to build investor relationships, making sure that the business stays funded so that we're able to continue to grow at the the rate that we'd like to, I would say are probably the two biggest things that are keeping me up. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to think about and a lot going on in the economy that we're in and whatnot. So I'm sure there's a lot of things on your plate. And, you know, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned you're consistently fundraising. So what's next for Partake? Like, where do you see this company going and the bigger mission that you have for your your amazing customers? Sure. So I think that there's definitely still white space in terms of distribution. So I hope that you are able to find Partake across every store in America. Right now, we're in about 10,000 retailers across the country. From a products perspective, we have some new innovation coming out this summer, and we have, we're working on some stuff past that. So thinking about how we can continue to work our way down the snack aisle. And then impact. Doing good is such a critical part of our business. And so making sure that as our business scales, our impact is continuing to scale as well. And so particularly around increasing diversity in the food industry and eradicating childhood food insecurity, we have some really interesting partnerships and a fellowship program that we're working to continue to develop. I love that. That's so much fun. I can't wait one day to do a fellowship program, but that's like, what a great feeling to give back, make an impact, help the next generation. But I'm so excited for you. And looking at just your own personal growth and journey, you know, there's nothing better than starting a business to have you realize like so many things about yourself, places that you need to grow. But how do you think you have changed from younger Denise when you were just launching to the woman that you are today? You know, it gets the best to me sometimes, but generally I have a lot more confidence in how strong I am and what I can handle and how what I can manage. So I think that's the biggest thing that's changed. I hope that otherwise I'm the same, but that I just recognize that I can do a lot more than I ever thought I could. Mm, I love that. And I'm sure with your daughter seeing you do this, you've probably continued to inspire her every day. You know, how is she involved in the business given that she was the biggest reason you started it? She's definitely the chief taste tester. It's definitely been interesting to see how entrepreneurship in our home has changed her lens. Like we'll walk down the aisles of a store and she'll be commenting about product photography and why do they have that on the front? You should tell this person this and like always has all these ideas for businesses. And so, you know, if that's the path she wants to follow, fantastic. But I also feel like my dad and that like, I know how hard it is. So why would you want to do like this? But I'm also like so supportive of it at the same time. I love the fact that she feels like there's no ceiling over her head. And if there's a problem that she wants to solve, she can work towards that. And so that's probably one of my favorite things about the business is just the impact that it has on her. Oh, I love that. And is your husband involved with your business full time? I know he was helping you early on, but is he involved? No, he has a full-time career in real estate that he loves, but he definitely, like, I think entrepreneurship is just a family affair all the time. So (laughs) it makes its way to our dinner table all the time. He's still super supportive on all the things that, that we need help with, but he has another job. 
I love it. No, it's like in our home, my husband has his own business, but we're always talking about business, you know, or anything along those lines. So I love that. And, you know, I'm always so curious. I feel like a lot of the women on my podcast have had really supportive partners, you know, along the way in their journeys with their children, with their businesses. Do you think that has been crucial to where you are today with Partake? 110%. If I did not have a supportive partner, whether that be, you know, managing school pickups, allowing, giving me the flexibility so I'm able to travel as I need to for work, helping support the business, just when I'm having a rough, I wouldn't be in this position today. Oh, that's so beautiful. And, you know, we get a lot of questions of, I don't love the word balance, but managing your business when with a child, you know, obviously your daughter was young. We hear this a lot. I would say so many of the women on my podcast who've built $100 million businesses started when their kid was quite young. But how has managing both of those lives been? And do you have any advice for women who are kind of doing that today? Outsource wherever you can. Have no guilt around outsourcing things that bring that do not bring you joy. And that it's it's really a balancing act. Some days are really heavy on the business. I'm traveling. I'm back-to-back calls, back-to-back meetings. And other days, I'm taking my daughter to school and picking her up. I need to walk away from the office for a little bit to an attend an attendant event at school. And I feel really fortunate that I have the flexibility to be able to do that. It's definitely a never-ending juggle, but it's one that I just can't imagine. I can't imagine doing anything else because both of those things are so important to me. You know, I don't have any kids yet, so I'm always asking these questions, but do you ever get, you know, I hear a lot of people talk about this mom guilt, but when you have a business that you're so passionate about and you also have a child that you love, like, do you feel that or how has that been for you? Mom guilt is a permanent part of my vocabulary, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I definitely feel it. You know, everybody's circumstances are different, but I have my daughter has friends whose moms stay at home with her. And like, I know that's a really hard job too, but like, she'll, as much as she loves our cookies, she also questions, like, why can't you be around more? Why do you have to miss this thing? And so, you know, at the end of the day, my family is my number one priority. So I'm always going to pick that. But the business is really important to me and really important to who I am. And so I make room for that, but my daughter is my priority. Yeah. And when she's older, she'll look back and, you know, she hasn't realized, I mean, you've been mentioning how entrepreneurial she is with with her thought process and being out, but I'm sure there's gonna be so many lessons as she grows up, just seeing, you know, you and your husband kind of run your own businesses and whatnot. But Denise, this was such a pleasure having you here today. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited for what you're building and what you continue to bring out to the world with Partake. And it was such a joy to have you on. Thank you. It was so great to be here. I appreciate it, Yasmin. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.